I'll, I'll start off by just saying that whenever I went out with Jim Schmidt, uh, I didn't know who knew most of the history. Uh, Jim would correct me a few times. Uh, <laughs> correcting me uh, was good for me. I learned a little bit. Um, what Rudy wanted me to talk about was coal mining just briefly, generally, and then set it up for the Jokerville mine. So, so here we go. I've just jotted a, a few t uh, notes down. Crested Butte has always been a coal town. From the day that Sant Robert, uh, Robinson and Howard Smith came in here in 1880 and began to coke coal in pits. And it stayed that way for 72 years until the big mine closed up in 1952. So I always used to laugh when some of my students used to say that uh, Crested Butte was a tourist town, a ski area, and I said, no, the, the history of Crested Butte was the, the history of a mining town. And there's still a lot of coal left in the area. Uh, there are three types of coal. One is called coking coal, and I'll get to the coke ovens in a second. That is also called slack. And that is the stuff that they burned in the coke ovens and sent down to the CF&I steel mills in Pueblo. A little more about that in a moment. The other, mine, the other type of coal is bituminous coal, and that's called soft coal, and that burns with great heat. And most of the mines around Crested Butte were bituminous mines, but not all. And the third type of coal is anthracite. And that is hard coal, and that is used primarily in industrial purposes, and it doesn't burn with the intensity of bituminous coal. Floresto was an anthracite mine. Anthracite, obviously, four miles up the slate, was an anthracite mine. Most of the rest of the mines were primarily bituminous mines. So those are three types of coal. One of the guys is very important in Crested Butte's history is William Jackson Palmer. And William Jackson Palmer was the man who started the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. And not only did he start the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, but he knew that you needed iron and steel to run it, so he's the guy who started in 1882 what was known then as the Colorado Coal and Iron Company in Pueblo, Colorado. And 10 years later, they reorganized and became known as the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, the famous CF&I in Pueblo. He is also the guy who built the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad from Denver to Colorado Springs, which is his town. He is the founder of Colorado Springs. And if you go into the Springs today, you can see, still see General Palmer on horseback right in the middle of Nevada Avenue. And then down to Pueblo, which he wanted to make the Pittsburgh of the West, so he started the CF&I. Then came up west through the Arkansas River Canyon at Canyon City, fought a four-year war with the Santa Fe Railroad to win the trackage through the canyon at Canyon City. And then came into Poncha Springs and bought out O'Meara's Toll Road and built over Marshall Pass into Gunnison in August of 81 and then ran a 28-mile track up to Crested Butte and arrived here on November the 21st, 1881. And you know, all know about the, the depot that is still out there. There were nine coal mines in Crested Butte. Three of them as you come into town on the left side of the road. The Buckley, the Robinson, and the Pueblo. If you go on the lower loop, you got two bituminous coal mines, and those are the Pershing and the Peanut. 
You got the big fluorescent mine, of course, that's 11 miles west of Crested Butte. You got the anthracite mine, Smith Hill area, Cloud City, the locals call it. That's four miles up the slate. And then you have the Jokerville, which I'm going to talk about, and the CFNI big mine. So those are your nine coal mines that you had in and around Crested Butte, one of the great coal mining areas of the nation, and certainly in Colorado. In Floresta, in 1898, they put in a five-story high coal breaker, the biggest west of Connellsville, Pennsylvania, for $100,000. And it broke up coal into five different sizes on each level. And the Rio Grande Railroad ran right underneath it and would take that coal out to the various spots. Pollution in Crested Butte was enormous. And it was enormous, and I've got first-hand accounts. When those coke ovens burned, I mean, it's just tremendous pollution that went over the town. A mist hung over the town. On top of that, when the Keystone Mine opened up in the 1880s, and I've got a picture of it before they put the treatment plant in, all of the debris that came, all of the waste that came out of that mine just floated right into Coal Creek. And there were other mines nearby, uh, up the slate at Pittsburgh and OB Joyful. So a lot of those mine tailings came right down the different streams. And on top of that, most of the timber around here was clear cut. And they used it in mine props, they used it in cabins, they used it in railroad ties. But one of the myths is, you know, they clear cut most of the timber around here and it didn't grow back very fast because of the high elevation and the long growing season. Most of the timber that came into Crested Butte was taken out of the Trinchera Lumber Company's mills up around Sargent's and also around Pitkin. And they brought it in from there. So one last little story. Uh, as you drive from Crested Butte and you go uh, over Marshall Pass or over Monarch Pass and down into Pueblo. Just imagine that you got 154 coke ovens here in Crested Butte. And that coke was baked for 48 hours. And then it was taken by rail over Marshall Pass by the railroad on into Pueblo. As you go off of Monarch Pass today, on the east side, you're going to see a big quarry on the right side of the road. You've all seen it. And that was a limestone quarry, also owned by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. And now to produce steel out of iron, which powered the United States Industrial Revolution, you got to have coking coal and you got to have limestone and you got to have one more thing. And that obviously is iron. So they all came together at Pueblo. Where I'm from in Michigan's Upper Peninsula is one of the great iron and copper ranges in the world. And we got a town out there not far from where I have a farm today that I grew up on called Bessemer in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And that was named for Henry J. Bessemer of England who in 1856 found out how to make iron into steel through the use of what we call a blast furnace. You got lime, you got coking coal, you got the molten iron, you inject hot air or air, blasting air into that furnace, and that drives out the impurities, a little more complicated than I'm giving you, but it drives out some of the impurities, 
and what is left is steel. And Crested Butte was an integral part of the production of steel in the U.S., and that powered the U.S. Industrial Revolution. So enough on that background. Now a little bit about the Jokerville, and I've just jotted down a few notes, and I'll be happy to try and answer any questions uh, as much as I can. It opened up in 1881. The newspaper account said it was exactly one quarter mile west of the center of Crested Butte. Exactly. <laughs> it was connected to the Coke ovens by railroad track. The first Coke had been done in pits, but in 1883, 50 Coke ovens made out of fire brick and large encased uh, with stone had already been built. So the first Coke ovens in town were built for the Jokerville mine. By 1884, 30 men were employed by the CF and by the CCNI at the Coke ovens, and another 120 men were working in the Jokerville 24 hours a day in three separate shifts. The best coking coal in Crested Butte came from the Jokerville. All the engineers who looked at this area said exactly that. The coal used in the ovens was screen coal, better known as slack, with the lump coal loaded on cars for market. So there's a big difference between the lump coal and the coking coal. 7.30 January 24th, 1884. Tremendous explosion came in the Jokerville about 30 minutes after the guys on the swing shift had come out and 30 minutes after the guys on the day shift had gone in. 60 men, you know, now we, we talked about how many men. And I've seen 58 and I've seen 60. I've never seen more than 60. I've never seen less than 58. So in terms of how many men actually were killed, you, 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 you kind of take your pick. It's either 58 or 60. Now the coroner's report may, may have that in the records. I didn't have a chance to talk to Frank Vader before I came here. All of the men killed, without exception, were Cousin Jacks. These are the guys from Ireland, Cornwall, England, Wales, Sweden, the people from southeastern Europe had not yet come. One or two had come, but they weren't in the mine. So almost all those people, all the people were killed were the Cousin Jacks. The reason they call them Cousin Jacks is if one of these guys were the best miners in the world, they'd come out of Wales in particular, if one guy was killed in the mine, a fellow would go up to the foreman and say, hey, my Cousin Jack can do that. So they're called Cousin Jacks and their wives were called Cousin Jennies. <laughs> now we'll get into the names, but some of the names uh, that we had later on, like McNeil and Sanderson and Ross, that still stayed in Crested Butte afterwards, these are the type of people that we're talking about. The men working in chambers one and two were all killed immediately because they thought and figured out that the explosion in the mine had occurred in chamber number two. Badly mutilated bodies were taken out. Others died because the fan providing ventilation had been wiped out. Now Johnny Cashian led 18 men, uh, led 11 men, 1,800 feet from chamber four out into the open and made it in the dark, scrambling over bodies as they came out. 
And when they came out into the open, a big cheer went up because people in Crested Butte thought, boy, maybe we're going to get a miracle here and maybe other guys are going to come out. Unfortunately, 20 men who tried to come out were died within 200 feet of getting out of the mine. They were completely uninjured, but because the fan had been smashed into smithereens by the explosion, they ran out of air. And these guys were found with handkerchiefs over their mouths. They just ran out of air at 200 feet to go. So that was the type of thing that, that could happen and did happen in the Jokerville. The Jokerville mine disaster was the third worst in Colorado history. It was the worst mining disaster in Colorado history up to that time. On, January, on June the 27th, 1917, at Hastings Mine near Trinidad in Colorado, 121 men died in the worst coal mining disaster in Colorado history even today. But up at that time, in 1884, the Jokerville was easily the worst disaster that had ever occurred. 46 miners were buried five days after the blast in a common grave on the northwest side of the Crested Butte Cemetery in three feet of snow in a driving blizzard. That was a newspaper account. A coroner's report said, after seven days of hearings, that the explosion had been in chamber number two, caused by gas coming into contact with naked light. Now the mining company, we'll get into this in a moment, uh, everybody was supposed to use safety lamps. And they claimed that somebody was not using a safety lamp and a naked match light had come into contact with gas and that caused the explosion in chamber two. Professor Arthur Lakes of Colorado School and Mines said that the Jokerville was very dangerous. He said the roof was poor and a ticking sound was heard constantly from the escape of gas in the coal. Lakes also said that as mining went deeper, coal gases increased and there was a tremendous need for better ventilation, but never put in. Lakes comment, and I'm quoting, quote, doubtless the coal of this mine contains the greatest amount of dangerous gas in the state. The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company chose the jury, and many who wanted to testify were not allowed to. John Gallagher, one of the miners who had worked in the Jokerville, said that although the fans supplied more air than the law required, much more escaped up the main shaft before it could be distributed within the mine. The CFNI obviously was guilty of gross negligence, and I'm going to give you about four or five reasons why. Number one, the coroner, a man named William Snyder, was an employee of the CFNI. Number two, the foreman from the anthracite mine. Guys came from all over the place to help get the bodies out. They came from Baldwin, Anthracite, and so on. When he came in, uh, he removed the dead men and he condemned the CC&I for negligence, but he was not called as a witness. John Gibson, the mine foreman, had only been in the mine six times in one year because he considered it too dangerous to go in any more than that. For number four, the law required that two entries of a mine be 300 feet apart, but the Jokerville entrances were only 60 feet apart. 
And number five, James Robinson, the superintendent, the man responsible for checking the gas, had been fired for neglect of duty a year before by the Colorado Coal and Iron Company. Miners came in from Baldwin and Anthracite to carry the dead miners out. The Baldwin mines, 65 guys worked in the Baldwin mines. Five guys showed up for work after the Jokerville exploded. They went into Gunnison. They caught a train up here when they couldn't get a special train. Twelve guys got up here in a horse-drawn sleigh. So the miners from all around came in to help out as much as they could. On January the 28th, four funerals took place, four days after the Jokerville exploded. The Masons buried John Rutherford, and the Oddfellows buried Dan McDonald, Jacob Lanks, and John Smith. On January the 29th, 46 miners were buried in a common grave. Funeral services began at the City Hall in the afternoon of the 28th. The Protestants took 30 minutes for a service. And then Father Quinn of the Catholic Church took an hour before a crowded city hall with people standing outside and waiting. At 2 o'clock p.m., the procession was formed in front of the Elk Mountain House. The order as they moved to the cemetery were sleighs with coffins, then miners in charge of Foreman Gibson, then officers in charge of Sheriff Doc Shores of Gunnison, then friends and citizens, and then Father Quinn and his altar boys. Newspaper count said, quote, It is very stormy here today, and the ceremonies have been carried out with great difficulty. The snow to the cemetery was three feet deep on the level, and no road was broken. They're tramping through three feet of snow. Despite this, most of the citizens walked to the cemetery. Several of the remains were transferred to the depot to be shipped to the east. The last two bodies, Tom Roberts and John Thomas, were found on February the 2nd, nine days later. All of the bodies had been placed in the blacksmith shop with a cart attached to the breast of each man as they were identified. The Jokerville never reopened. It was allowed to fill up with water. Some of the best coking coal in the nation is still there. One year later, a new opening was made 60 feet above the old vein, but was still very dangerous because of gas. That mine was worked for nine years and then closed in 1895 because of too much gas and because the coal vein had narrowed to eight feet. Later, the Crestview newspaper, Elk Mountain Pilot, made this statement in the paper in honor of the men and where they work. I'm quoting right now. While rising sheer against the sky in all its matchless majesty, defiant of the ages sped, the butte uplifts its crested head. In granite armor, strong and gray, a sentinel that still guards the way. Solomon still, it seems to be, looking into futurity. Couple of comments here. Most of the men who died in the Jokerville mine were single. Six of the miners had families living in Crested Butte. Money and food for the widows came, including $1,000 from William Jackson Palmer. 
That was apportioned out according to children per family, $65 per kid. So if you're a minor with four kids, you got, you know, $240. Two boys, Tommy Lyle and William Neath, 12 years old, were killed. They were working as gatekeepers, and when the explosion hit at the mouth of the mine, they were killed. Uh, Morgan Neath, the brother of the 12-year-old William, also was killed. He was 17 years old. He was a driver. William DeCursey, a prominent citizen of Crested Butte, I, I, I love this one, was quoted in the Rocky Mountain News as saying that the most important thing about this disaster was it was a great financial loss to Crested Butte merchants because it kept other miners from working while cleanup came, a temporary damper was on the camp. I wasn't worried about the guys who got killed. It was just kind of a financial disaster here. The Colorado Coal and Iron Company telegraphed around the country to find the families. Now, some of these guys were single, and they, they really had a hard time finding out where they were from, where their families were. One writer wrote to the newspaper and referred to the mine as a slaughter pen of the CC&I. So that's it on the Jokerville. Do I have a moment or two to talk a little bit about the big mine? Moments as you want. A little about the big mine, uh, you know, which is very close to the Jokerville. 1894 to 1952, six miles of underground track, produced bituminous coal, employed 400 men, third largest coal mine in Colorado. 70 mules worked in the mine and outside at a cost of $200 each. A couple of people told me when I interviewed them back in the, uh, the 60s when I got here that the CF&I was not real happy about a mule being killed. They'd probably rather have a guy being killed because a mule costs $200. And when a guy got killed, you give $10 to the miners fund and you bring another guy in to work. The yearly payroll to CF&I was $400,000. $35,000 a month. Initial workers, Cousin Jacks. Later people coming in, do you know the people of Crested Butte today? The Capuchins and the Veltries and the Sayas and the Malensics came in from southeastern Europe. They had been farmers. They had to learn how to mine. And the miners made $3 a day. Those working by the ton could make up to 5 and $6 a day. 100, now I didn't count this up, but I would say that in the years from 1884 to 1952 when the mines closed in Crested Butte, if you eliminate the 60 killed in the Jokerville mine, another 150 men were killed in the mines of Crested Butte. So falling rock, explosions, one guy got kicked in the head by a mule, so you're looking at, over the course of a total of 72 years, uh, 200 men killed in 72 years, and that may be low. That's three guys a year. Now, that's not counting avalanches as people uh, you know, came from one mine to a, coming into town. And that's just an estimate. I guess I ought to count that up sometime. Fire in 1909 burned the engine house and several outside buildings, and the mine closed for 30 days. Same thing happened in 1921. 
major vein in the mine was five and a half feet by 24 feet thick. The mine workings extended south under a cover of rock 2,000 feet thick. The roof of the mine was shale overlain by massive sandstone. The coal in the big mine was high grade and timbering was used. The method of mining was room and pillar. Rooms were 24 feet wide and 400 feet long. Ventilation came from an exhaust fan 11 feet by 6 inch, 11 feet 6 inches in diameter. Explosive gases occurred at some places in the mine and no matches were allowed. Safety lamps had to be used. The coal was sheared by hand with no shooting allowed because of the danger of explosions. 200 wooden mine cars of 3,000 pounds capacity each were used. From the pit mouth, the coal went by gravity incline to the tipple, which was located so that the coal could be located into waiting Denver and Rio Grande Railroad cars uh, right next to the Coke ovens. Strikes were common. Two big ones occurred 1913 and 14 and 1927. That's it. Any questions? Sure. Do you know of any families that stayed? Of the, you say six were family men. Do you know of any families that stayed around or, or, or of any of the single people that were, were killed in the mine explosion? Yeah. I know of none. I know of none. I think they're all, all were gone. Um, could you explain the safety lamp? Like, uh, well, I think uh, other people in their mind explain it better than me. A safety lamp doesn't have any, you know, like a flame. Right. Uh, it, yeah, you know, I've seen them. John, I don't know if you can explain a safety lamp for me. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a, a light as opposed to an open flame is the best way that I could describe a safety lamp as opposed to using matches and a direct flame. Would they have to light it before they go in? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. You know, you go into a coal mine today, or a lot of mines today, and I mean, they got all kinds of safety things they never had at that time. There were basically very few safety regulations at that time. Uh, anytime you had a mine, if you had a mine today with a ticking sound in it, I guarantee you that <laughs> mine probably wouldn't be open. That's, you know, methane gas, obviously. Uh, yeah, you, Shell, you had your hand. Blacksmith shop, they, the bodies were Well, the, they had one blacksmith shop up there. I think, uh, I think Rudy's got a plat, and I've seen it. it. It's right up on the bench, and it was right next to where they housed the mules. Yeah. So that's where the bodies were? That's where the bodies were, right on the bench, yeah. And then they, they put a little note on as they identified him. Some of these guys were so badly injured, it was very difficult to identify them. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah. um, how and when did the Jeffersville mine get its name? Well, uh, you know, I don't know that. I, that's like when people ask Opie Joyful. I, I finally found the answer to that. But uh, I've never seen in the newspapers how the Jokerville got its name. Don't know. Still looking. You know, I've been through the papers from 1880 to 1980, I'm at now, every one. And once in a while, you'll find little two-line tidbits that explain stuff like that. For in, I'll give you a for instance. At Western State, <clears throat> I got a picture of the basketball team with ENS on it. 
And I wondered for you, what the hell did that E stand for? It's Colorado State Normal School. And finally, I wrote a little two-line blurb in the paper, stood for elementary normal school, because it was a two-year school <laughs> teaching elementary students. Uh, OB Joyful, a guy named Jim Brennan, who Lake Irwin, it used to be called Lake Brennan, it's now Lake Irwin. He was the guy who named it because he thought that it was going to be joyful. <laughs> I ran into that. So it's very difficult to get, come up with some of these answers. If I do, I'll let you know. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Do you hear politicians now sometimes referring to clean coal? Which of the three types of coal would that Yeah, be? you know, the, the clean coal, uh, in, if you're out in Ohio and Pennsylvania, the coal there is dirty. The coal in Wyoming and Colorado is so valuable because it's clean, which means it has a very low sulfur content. That's clean coal. Okay. That's why our coal is much more valuable environmentally out here than it is in the east. Okay. Yes? Um, just a clarification on the Coke ovens. So they were installed over here when the Jokerville mine was in place, or were, were, did the Jokerville mine have its own? No, the, what I gathered was that the 40 Coke ovens that were put in for the Jokerville were simply would have been the western part of the coke ovens when the other 114 were put in. So they were 154, but there were only, I guess I said 50 of them, uh, 50 of them would have been the western part of that whole series of ovens. And then when the big mine opened up, they just built the ovens closer to the big mine. See, the Jokerville and the big mine weren't that far apart. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, the big mine, uh, probably some of their openings were pretty close to where the Jokerville was. Yes? Um, are there any artifacts existing right now of the Jokerville mine? Through None that I know of. And where exactly is it in relation to the big mine? Well, you know, Glow and I have walked there a time or two, and I can, I don't know if the, we have the exact spot. I can come within 10 feet of it. <laughs> but the exact opening, you know, I don't know. It closed up and it's been closed up for 130 years, so it'd be very difficult. But you went and look in town, the railroad tracks that were going on out, and like Geo Jenny Bullock's house and some of those houses, it's straight on out there, just going just straight on out. Yeah. Here's, here's the way you want to do that start in the middle of town. <laughs> exactly 400 meters, you got it. What's the middle? Well, yeah, they didn't say where the middle was. The plaza. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. So you were mentioning that uh, about in 1885 or 1895, there was a second mine. Correct. 60 feet above the other one, 60 feet away. So they kept it the name of the Jokerville? Yes, they did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. It was just an extension of the Jokerville. Uh, the reason that they did that was, as I told you, that's some of the best coking coal in the state. They, didn't, they, they were hesitant to leave that, even though the Jokerville had exploded. The mine that's just east of Obi Dribble Waterfall, where there's all of the artifacts that are still out, and like the little, you can actually see where the mine shaft was, it's a little, what mine is that? Well, that's the Obi Joyful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, none of that, a Poverty Gulch and Obi Joyful, they, the interesting thing about that area is at Poverty Gulch, the famous Augusta mine produced a lot of ore. 
In Obi Joyful, if the Obi Joyful mind, it tried to produce nothing. So Obi Joyful was nothing and Poverty Gulch was a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, and there's so much fantastic history. If you go up the Slate River to where Pittsburgh is and was, they had two trams that carried ore from the Augusta down towards Pittsburgh. But they never lasted very long because the avalanche danger just wiped them out completely. So Duane, you said there were 46 men buried in the mass grave. In the common grave, yeah. The newspaper is pretty clear on that. And then you said there were four others that were in third. Yeah, that, uh, uh, let me just go through here again, John. Um, Delhi. Um. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Masons buried John Rutherford, and the Odd Fellows buried three guys. So four of them were buried individually in Preston Butte. Okay, um, <clears throat> Jesse or, or somebody back there. Those names, those four names that were buried, are they on that plaque? The outline, yeah. Mm -hmm. The ones that are in the road. Okay. Um, so we have two markers out there that that uh, identify three other people. Mm -hmm. They were all in their 40s. And our best guess is they were probably supervisors or foremen, guessing that most of the other guys were probably pretty young. Yeah, I don't know, guess. except to remember that four of them were buried not with the 46. They were buried earlier. These four guys, so let me read, uh, read it to you again here. Jim um, McCorton is one that is the biggest stone. Yeah, here's what I took out of the papers. On January 28th, four funerals took place. The Masons buried John Rutherford, and the Oddfellows buried Dan McDonald, Jacob Lanks, and John Smith. So they were separate funerals from the 46 guys buried in the common grave. They were not in the 46. I'm just trying to figure out how many people actually might be buried at the site, even though... Well, there's 50 for sure. Yeah. And then others, other bodies were shipped. Yeah, they, I think it, it said that uh, they advertised and, and six bodies were shipped out. So that would make 56, but I don't know if there are two bodies later. What's that? And you said they found two bodies. Yeah, but these guys, these guys, I think were were uh, buried later. That's right. So that would be fifty-eight. I think the if I were guessing, I think the accurate number is fifty-eight. But um, that's a guess. Any others? If not, folks, thanks for coming. It's been my pleasure. Great information. <laughs> Appreciate it. brought a book for Jim along, he can figure out who gets it. <laughs> On Crested Butte.